Good morning, everyone. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. Welcome again to North Suburban Church. This spring, we are engaged together in a team effort to help each other answer the question, where do I stand with God? Like, what's my status with respect to him? That's what we meant when we called this sermon series, You Are Here. You've seen those signs around. We're taking inventory, both individually and collectively, in such a way that we hope to gain some clarity by the end of May regarding how God sees us and what his message is to us at this moment in our corporate history together. So before we get into today's scripture text, I want to highlight just one particular God-ordained way for a Christian to confirm his or her standing before God, and that's to join a healthy local church, a place where God's spirit is at work and his word is taken seriously. In the context of a local congregation like this one, we get to ask our brothers and sisters who have seen our lives in action, we get to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, as, as far as you can tell, do I show evidence of belonging to Christ? Biblically, that's a major function of the local church. And by the way, that's a particular function of the local church that doesn't work quite as well online. But as church members, we agree to cooperate together as a family, working to deepen one another's assurance that, yes, I actually I do truly belong to Christ. And helps us to resist those lies of the devil that would tell us that we don't. So to that end, we have a membership meeting today right after service. We only do these twice a year. I just want to make sure everyone here knows that you are invited to stay and have lunch with me today down on the other end of the church right after, right after service. Whether you've been here three months, whether you've been here 30 years, if you're not a member, I want to answer your questions. We want to uh, talk to you about the church, about becoming a member at North Sub. And <clears throat> I know how it is. A couple of you have come to me and said, hey, you know, I've been here forever and I just never quite got around to becoming a member at this point. It's just a little embarrassing. I get it. We get it. There's no shame, though. Just come on down. Stay with us. Have lunch. Meet the staff. And let's talk about membership at North Sub. Looking forward to getting into the Word together. Let's pray together now. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. The entertainment industry has figured out that there's incredible power in an origin story. Star Wars did it 20 years ago when they went back and created episodes 1, 2, and 3 to tell us Darth Vader's origin story. Broadway did it with the musical Wicked, which provides an origin story for the Wizard of Oz's Wicked Witch of the West. A few months back, my wife and I watched Cruella, which is Disney's origin story of Cruella DeVille from 101 Dalmatians. And you know how it goes. Those origin stories indelibly shape and reshape their characters in our minds. So once you've watched episode one, you'll never watch episode four quite the same again. Once you've watched Wicked, you've never, you'll never watch The Wizard of Oz quite the same. Once you watch Cruella, you'll never watch 101 Dalmatians quite the same. An origin story has incredible power to shape and to reshape identity. But it's not just individuals or characters who have origin stories. Places have origin stories too. 
defining moments that as they get retold over and over again over the years have impacted everyone's perception of that place. Just one example is Chicago flag, right? This flag is the city of Chicago saying, here's where we come from, right? A star for the establishment of Fort Dearborn, a star for the great Chicago fire, and then two for world's fairs, right? You can't take a tour of the city without hearing your tour guide explain that. I'm pretty sure they get fired on the spot when they get back if they didn't tell you. It's Chicago's origin story. Now let's journey together this morning to the city of Sardis. The ruins of which are in modern day Turkey. That's a picture actually I got to take in 2004 when I went there. Sardis had an origin story too. Everybody who lived there knew the story. And that origin story of Sardis figures into our scripture text today. Would you turn to Revelation chapter 3 with me if you haven't already? Revelation chapter 3. Last book of the Bible. Right at the end of your Bible. We're presently working our way through the risen Jesus' late first century letters to seven churches through the pen of the Apostle John. Sardis is the fifth of the seven churches addressed. It's a city that had been rebuilt after being heavily damaged by earthquakes. At the time this is written, it's a city with a strong wool or textile industry, a prominent temple to the goddess Kibbola, a theater, a stadium. It's got a marble road running through it. But there's a story from this city's history that every one of its residents would have known. It goes back several centuries before before when this was written, when when Sardis was this proud city with an unbelievable set of fortifications and a huge stash of gold. Back then, Sardis was thought to be an impregnable stronghold. Foreign armies would be foolish to attack the city. It was too well protected. But then, one night, around 547 B.C., Sardis' watchmen supremely confident in their city's walls and defenses, they let themselves sleep, despite Cyrus's Persian army being camped not too far off. And in the middle of the night, the city walls were scaled in silence by a small band of silent invaders who took the city before the sleeping of people of Sardis even knew what was happening. That story becomes seminal to Sardis's history and self-understanding. But catch this, it happened again, actually. Three centuries later, in 214 B.C., so still well before this letter was written, almost the exact same thing, a nighttime invasion that took advantage of sleeping guards and Sardis to scale the walls of the city using stealth, and the city fell again, this time to Antiochus III. Now, my dad used to always say, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So as you can probably imagine, this became part of how Sardis was known around the region and around the world. Every tour guide in Sardis would have told this story. That not once, but twice in their otherwise proud history, watchmen had let the city get invaded. So now here comes Jesus. Writing through the Apostle John to the Christians in Sardis around the year 90 A.D. And in the letter Donna just read, Jesus' message is essentially this. Church, you are susceptible to a spiritual version of the sleepy complacency that has twice led to your city's demise. I'll say that again. Church, you are susceptible to a spiritual version of the sleepy complacency that has twice led 
to your city's demise. And so today we'll look more closely at that spiritual lethargy. And we'll turn the mirror on ourselves here at North Sub to ask, to what extent does or doesn't that describe us? Unlike most of the letters in this series, there is no real section of this text that's dedicated to commending the church at Sardis. So the passage really has four parts. Who's writing, what's wrong, what must be done, and possible outcomes. Who's writing, what's wrong, what must be done, possible outcomes. As you can see, there's some overlap between the verses there. So we'll take them as they come. First, who's writing? Who's writing? It's the risen Jesus writing, of course, writing by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. But remember that in each of the seven letters, he introduces himself with a self-description that's tailored to the specific community that's receiving the letter, emphasizing some aspect of his nature that's exactly what this particular church particularly needs to be aware of. So, how does he introduce himself to the church at Sardis? He says this, write to the angel of the church at Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits of God, remember, is a vivid way of describing the one multifaceted Holy Spirit of God, with seven being a number of completion. The seven stars, we were told a couple chapters back, are angels carrying out God's work on behalf of the churches. So put that together, and what does this introduction mean? Here's what I think it means. If Jesus is the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God, and if Jesus is the one who has the seven stars, he's telling this church that he has the resources to equip and empower them to do whatever it is that he's about to call them to do in this letter. Like it might be something big he calls them to, might be something scary, might be something difficult, okay. But the one in their corner supplying and sustaining them as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What earthly power is going to be able to overcome that? I wonder if it's maybe a, a ramped up version of what we hope Ukrainians are experiencing right now in battle as they're worn down, running out of supplies, and then hopefully a fresh shipment arrives from their friends around the world. Is that what, Christ, is that what Christ is trying to remind the Christians in Sardis of here? Like, church, I'm not operating from a place of scarcity, Jesus says. Right? I'm the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So if you're ready to get into this fight that you've been called to, everything you need will be showered down to you from heaven. I can do it. I think it would be wrong to move on from here without pausing to ask Whatever it is that God may be calling us to, North Sub, do we believe that the one who holds the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars will abundantly supply all that we need to follow through on it? I mean, just think about the spirit that he holds for a moment. Not even death itself was able to last 12 rounds with God's spirit. The Spirit conquered death and raised our Lord Jesus from the jaws of death. You don't think that same Spirit can resurrect our congregation? You don't think that same Spirit can resurrect you and me?
uh, Lord, may we not quench your spirit. Can I give one small concrete suggestion for how we might get out of the way of the working of God's sevenfold spirit among us? You know how we uh, invite people up from time to time to come to microphones and testify to God's work? I'm working at getting better at setting up those times to uh, maximize them for our congregation. But when we do that, and when you feel that tug from God's Holy Spirit to share something, can I suggest that you do stand up from your seat right away? That you walk to that mic and give glory to God? Don't quench the Spirit and rob us of what He wants to show us through you. For that matter, open mic or not, when the Spirit lays something on your heart, don't hold back. Bring it to the church or at least to your life group or growth group or to church leadership, whatever is most appropriate, so that we can all benefit from it. Whether it's pleasant to hear or painful to hear, we want that. So the one writing is the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, what's wrong? What's wrong? The introductory phrase here, I know your works, is how Jesus usually tees up his praise for the church in a certain city. I know your works, and he goes on to commend them for something. But in this time, in verse 1, it's different. The only accomplishment that Jesus can bring himself to commend this city for is what they've named themselves. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Literally, it's, I know your works. You have a name for being alive, but you're dead. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know that people think you're an alive church, but that's just a mirage. And I know it. I guess that attending church service in Sardis might have been like if you visited a church today that was called something like Thrive Church, right? But then you sat through a service while the congregation around you stoically sat on their hands the whole time, merely spectating while the people up on stage talked in monotone voices and then they all went home. You'd be like, the name on the door doesn't match the reality inside. That's the church at Sardis. It's dead, verse 1. Well, not totally dead, right? Because verse 2 tells us, well, there's still part of you that's only about to die. That little nugget gives us some hope. Gives the church at Sardis some hope, like in the Princess Bride, right? When they find out Wesley's only mostly dead. In the wise words of Miracle Max, mostly dead is slightly alive, right? So there's still a chance for Sardis to change, to live on. But it's going to be difficult because the spiritual sleep that has fallen over this community is so deep that they're effectively comatose. Chuck Swindoll says Sardis is a morgue with a steeple. Another pastor says Sardis has it all in the show window, but nothing in stock. The antidote to this sleep would be alertness. See that in verse 2? Right after the declaration of death, be alert. You're dead, be alert. Contrasted with one another. And you remember the history, don't you? The call to be alert in this particular city would have hit, hit differently. It, they knew exactly what Jesus was referencing when they heard those words. If you're not alert, I will come like a thief. And you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. That's literally their city's origin story. 
The failure to be alert had made this city fatally vulnerable to invaders twice in its history. And now the church was in danger of facing the same fate spiritually. Here's a question I had while I was working through this. What does lack of alertness have to do with defiled clothes? Be alert. If you're not alert, then defiled clothes. What's the connection here? Where does that come from? Are we talking about poor detergent choices being made in Sardis? Because this word defiled is often used in Scripture in conjunction with idolatry, most commentators think that the Sardian Christians' sleepy complacency has a lot to do with their becoming too much like the world around them and thereby stained or polluted by the idols in their city. Picture it this way. The people of Sardis seem happy to go with the flow, to keep a low profile in town, to make sure they don't stand out around the community. So as the crowd shuffles along, offering up worship to false gods. The majority of the professing Christians in town are just shuffling right along with everybody. And before long, what happens to their clothes, spiritually speaking? Their clothes end up looking just like everybody else's, stained with sin. And look, I mean, we can empathize to some degree, can't we? Think about it. The Christians in Sardis, they're aware that as we've seen in previous weeks, the, the Christians in towns around them, immediately surrounding them, are getting executed for refusing to worship the emperor or to, for refusing to worship the Roman gods. So, of course, some of the church members in Sardis are going to start saying, hey, let's just all tone it down here in Sardis, right? Let's just do whatever we need to do to survive, to see another day. We Christians, we're not going to do any good for Sardis if all of us go and get ourselves killed. But that right there is the first step towards stained clothes. That right there is how a church starts to get the life sucked out of it, friends. And it didn't take long before the people of Sardis looked at the church in town and only saw mirror images of themselves. Once the Sardian Christians depart from the radical nature of the way of Jesus, it doesn't take more than a generation. This is only 90 AD before the church of Sardis becomes indistinguishable from the rest of Sardis. In nearly every way. And so, at the time of this letter, despite what other Christians around Asia Minor might think about Sardis based on glory years gone by, the sad truth is that the church at Sardis is now all but dead. Measured by God's standard, their works are insufficient. I have not found your works complete before my God. And that's the measure that we're interested in this semester, isn't it? God's standard? Here at Northside, we're not asking, how do we stack up in comparison to other churches around? We're not even asking, do people speak highly of us or not? No. We're asking, do we have Christ's approval the way two of these seven churches did? Or is he lovingly rebuking us like the other five of the seven? What does God have to say to Northside? That's what we're asking. Well, we have our own reputation for life here at Norsub, at least among folks that knew Norsub 20, 30 years ago. We're known as being an alive church from that season in our church's life. So what's true about us today? How are we doing? 
How alive are we? Let's strap into the heart rate monitor for a moment. What's our pulse reading? And does it match our reputation from days gone by? Actually, I want to give two pieces of praise, restrained praise, but praise on this front. And a quick aside before I share these two pieces of praise. Our, our approach to culture at North Sub, in case you haven't heard us say this, is that we want to become just like our culture in all kinds of non-sinful ways in order to connect with them and win a hearing for our gospel. Become all things to all people so we might win some, in Paul's words. Yet, it's absolutely critical that we're prepared to break with our culture when our culture comes in conflict with the lordship of Christ, as every culture does. So we're trying to hold to both of those. So here's praise number one along those lines. My read is that in the last few years, we here at North Sub have become more distinguishable from the world around us in at least one really good way. And that's in our political dialogue. The clothing, so to speak, of the northern shores, northern suburbs of Chicago is soiled with, among other idolatries, the idolatry of political allegiance on both sides, left and right. It's become godlike status. It rules everything else in people's lives. Just a few short years ago, my assessment, rightly or wrongly, was that our own clothes at North Sub were quite defiled with that same idolatry. But now, I look around on a Sunday morning, by and large, I don't believe I'm looking at a congregation for which that's the case. I'm looking instead at a people, yes, who have political convictions, yes, who are engaged in what's going on in our world, but who have subordinated political allegiance to its rightful place, which is down here compared to the Lordship of Christ. I don't know, am I wrong about that? About God doing a work in us in that area? I know we're not perfect on it, but I praise God for awakening his people to our idolatry and for cleansing that pollution from our midst to a large extent. Okay, praise number two, restrained praise number two. Uh, are we dead? Are we alive? Here's how I think I'd describe it, and I hope this isn't a hurtful assessment. I'd love to hear other opinions on this. I think we're experiencing, I would say it this way, I think we're experiencing the flutters of a church waking up again. The flutters of it, right? Like, I sense the Lord doing a renewing work among us. And I know many of you do too, revitalizing us. He's, he's stirring us up from our slumber. And just a few ways that I see that. One, we've had a mini flood of new people in the last few months. Many of you weren't coming here a few months ago. You just moved to the area who are at all different stages in their spiritual journeys. Yet they're saying... I'm ready to be part of the family. Give me a job to do. Give me somebody to pour into. I don't want to be on the sideline. I want to get in the game. Even though they just showed up. That's a spark of life for our congregation. A second one is we've had facility needs come up. For example, some of you came in to see broken glass on the floor. We've had some of these lights shattering. Uh, and bulb prices here getting astronomically expensive. And then a family in the church reaches out to me a couple weeks ago. And says, hey... Did I hear that it's $60,000 to switch these out to LED lights? Don't burden the church with that bill. Don't slow down the work of the Spirit to run a capital campaign. We'll write the check for the $60,000. That's a spark of life for our congregation. It keeps us on track, talking about the things we need to be focused on. 
Another one, we've learned that we have people here who have responded to a recent sermon calling us to reach our neighbors with the gospel by just going ahead and doing it. They initiated spiritual conversation. You told your story to a friend. You shared the gospel, and then you shared that with me. That's a spark of life. Now, don't get me wrong, right? There, there are days when life in any local congregation still feels quite fragile. But can you feel this church waking up? It feels to me like that's what's happening. I don't know, about 10 or 12 years ago, after all this church went through and the Lord allowed this church to get put through the ringer, what's said about Sardis here might have been a better picture of what was going on at North Sub. I don't know. But now, Christ is doing a new work. Let's not neglect and marvel at that. Think about what Christ could have done instead of sending his spirit to breathe life into us. Right? Think about that for a moment. When North Sub started to show signs of lethargy, when Sardis started to suffer from rigor mortis, Christ could have said, well, that's it. Pull the plug. It's done. Instead, he loves his bride so much that he says, no, 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 give her a little more time. I'm still willing to send my spirit to breathe life into her. Do you believe that God's spirit can breathe life into a dying church? Brings us to what must be done. What must be done? There are actually five things here that must be done for Sardis to reawaken. Five things Jesus tells them to do. You can see them peppered throughout the passage here. We'll just make a quick note of each one. First is to be alert. Be alert. This is a term that can have tone, overtones of wakefulness, watchfulness. So in response to those in Sardis saying, let's keep our heads down and keep shuffling along with the crowd. Verse 2 says, no, pop your head up above the crowd. Look around. Stop and read the signs of the times. Gain understanding about what's really going on. Be alert. Second, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. It's like the campfire that hasn't quite died out. There's still something left, something that hasn't totally been lost from what this church once had when it used to be healthy. So Jesus is like, take that last dying ember and tend to it, stoke it, blow on it, fan it back into flame. That's what he means by strengthen what remains. Third, just like we saw a few weeks ago in the letter to Ephesus, it's not inappropriate to do some looking backward in all this. So Jesus says, remember Remember what you have seen and heard. What have they received and heard? Catch this, because there's somebody here who really needs to hear this. I believe that. What Sardis has received and heard is not first and foremost a set of good instructions about how to live. It's the good news about the one who died in their place. That's the primary thing they need to remember. Not what to do differently, but the gospel about what was done for them, that when they were lost in their sins, captive to their impulses, Jesus responded by laying down his life, laying down his life to pay the blood price for their freedom. Remember that, Jesus says, because mere instructions will never produce true repentance. Repentance, turning, comes from a transformed heart taken captive by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, once that happens, I don't obey to gain God's acceptance. I obey because I am accepted. So that gospel that you remember, keep it and repent. Keep it and repent. That's the next one. Say, 
Say you buy a house with a white fence outside. And you say, well, I'm glad it's already white because I want that fence to be white. So you leave it alone. After all, it's a white fence and you want a white fence. After a couple of years of leaving it alone, what color fence do you have? Brown, right? Yeah. Because in order for your fence not to change, you have to change your fence. Just to keep the same color, you'll have to work to paint over it because a fence doesn't drift toward whiteness. It's the same with us. None of us ever drift into anything good or meaningful. It just doesn't happen. The drift is in the other direction. So even if we want to merely just keep the best of what we have, we have to be prepared to fight for it. We'll need to repent over and over again from our drifting. We'll need to capture and recapture what we once had just to maintain what we had. That's why Jesus says, remember what you had. Keep it and repent. And finally, conquer. That's the last verb here. The one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. But conquer what? Seems to be the conquering in context of the drift into worldliness. In other ways, in other words, the way that the Sardian Christians will conquer is by remaining pure in a church that has blended in with the world. So, be alert. Strengthen what remains. Remember, repent, conquer. What might these five look like at North Sub? Let me take a brief stab at each. First, uh, the call to be alert is a tough one today because we're supposed to apparently be on highest alert about everything. Anybody else feel that way? That's the expectation? Like if we're not sufficiently distraught about representation in Disney's latest animated film or about the effects of gentrification on certain historic Chicago neighborhoods or about the fate of the animals in the Kiev Zoo this week, for shame. The problem is that that's super exhausting to have to be caring maximally about all of the things going wrong in the world. And after being told day after day that today's problem is the biggest problem ever, some of us are getting numb. We're getting, becoming unable to feel like anything is a big deal anymore. Our capacity to be alert, in other words, is being dulled. But of course, that doesn't mean that there's nothing that we should be alert about. The fact is that there are things that we should be on high alert about. Our faith makes radical demands on us in a pagan culture like the one we're living in. So if we've thrown in the towel and just given in to sloughing along head down with the rest of culture because it's all too overwhelming to care about anything else, we're in danger, friends. Maybe God's calling someone here to be the first first in your family, first in your life group, first in your growth group, to pop your head up above the crowd and look around and say, wait, 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 wait. Can we take a look together at what's happening here? I feel like we've become too much like the world and it might be time for us to wake up. Second, strengthen what remains. Strengthen what remains. I came across Danny Aiken's summary of the situation at Sardis and it almost, I had to stop and just drop what I was doing and just read it a few times. Because it was sobering. I, w- I want to read this and ask us to consider to what degree does this or doesn't this describe us? Here's what he says about Sardis. Though the quantity of their works was deficient, it is more likely that it was the quality of their works that was most lacking. They had grown content with a mediocre, halfway, 
comfortable, and convenient Christianity. Their faith was not radical. It was almost invisible. The lost among whom they lived, worked, and prayed saw nothing different or unique about them. The culture didn't oppose them. It simply ignored them as of no real consequence or significance. They were so weak in their confession of Christ that they bothered no one. Like the unfinished temple of Kibbola in their city, they too were incomplete in what Christ saved them and called them to be. I share that because I believe that there may be a brave group of people in our midst. Maybe among church leadership, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's the youth group. Uh, maybe it's our high school students who decide that this is going to be you. A brave group of people in our midst who can identify the ember of radical faith that still remains among us at North Sub. And has the patience to blow on that and fan it back into flame. Strengthen what remains. Third, remember. Remember. Let's remember what Jesus did for us when we didn't deserve it. Let's remember also the time in our church's history when our church's founders were so captivated by that good news of Jesus Christ that they were knocking on doors all over Deerfield to try to pull people from death to life, despite the fact that many of those doors were getting slammed back in their face. And let's repent. To the extent that we've drifted, let's repent and rejoin the fight. And as we work to conquer that drift, uh, I think D.A. Carson says it well about what that conquering will look like. He, 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 he notes the situation today. The pressure of secularization allows us to be religious as long as our religion doesn't matter. The pressure of secularization allows us to be religious as long as our religion doesn't matter. And that's true on the North Shore, isn't it? Your workplace, your neighborhood, they don't have any problem with you being religious. We speak as if they do, but they don't. As long as your religion doesn't find its way into your ethics or your politics or your sexuality or your gender expression, they don't have any problem with it. So we're being influenced to let our religion be reshaped into a private faith, one that, for all intents and purposes, doesn't really matter. But friends, once we've done that, once we've taken on a religion that doesn't really matter, it's just our private little thing that we do on the side, we cease to be conquerors. In fact, we have just become the conquered May it not be so here at North Sub. May we live out a faith that profoundly matters. After all, there's a lot at stake. And that's our final portion, the possible outcomes. There are two possible outcomes named here in this text. First, for the individual or church who is alert, who's repentant, who conquers, they will walk with Jesus in white with their robes cleansed forever by his blood. They'll be counted worthy. And on the same grounds that he's declared worthy, if you flip ahead to chapter 5, because he endured and conquered. There in chapter 5 it says that Jesus endured and conquered, and so he's been counted worthy. It's the same for the church. Now they endure and conquer, and they're counted worthy. As such, their names show up in the book of life. Not that their conquering earned their place in that book, but rather their conquering confirms that they were rightfully put in the book in the first place. And they get to hear, Jesus, 
confess their name before his father and the angels. That's the last part of it. He will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Can you imagine how cool that would be? Just as they, we, confess his name in a situation in which it's risky to do so, Jesus will now publicly confess our names, unashamedly declaring, Father, this one is mine. Now, for the individual or for the church who is not alert, who is unrepentant, who doesn't conquer, it doesn't matter that they claim to be Christian, according to this passage. There's a different outcome for them. The outcome of Jesus coming like a thief. They'll face the same fate the city of Sardis faced during the invasions by both Cyrus and Antiochus III. A thief successfully bringing destruction. As a result, their names won't be found in the book. Despite that they might publicly claim the name of Christ, on that day it won't matter. Given that the stakes are that high, our big idea today is this. Instead of resting on our reputation, let's make sure we are actually alert. Instead of resting on our reputation, let's make sure we're actually alert. When I visited the ruins of Sardis back in 2004, our trip leader noted that at the time of the excavation of the city, crosses were found carved into the doorposts of 10 of the 21 shops on the main road in Sardis, which is a possible indicator that some may have responded to this letter in the short term by waking up, by putting their faith out on Main Street. This letter may have had its intended effect. Friends, the glory years, so to speak, at Norsub gave us a regional and even national reputation of being alive as a church, vibrant. The question for us in March 2022 is this, is there still life here? I don't know. Nothing would make me happier if, than if one day we look back on this spring, spring of 2022, as a decisive turning point. A call to arms that God gave us in Scripture and that he used to stir our hearts to transform this comfortable cruise ship of North Shore Christian life into a combat-ready battleship? What if we had a surge of retired men taking younger men under their wing, of, of empty nester moms helping younger moms find some sanity, of, of, of young adults investing in our children and students, warning them about how easy it is to fall prey to the world? What, what if we deployed into Monday Chicagoland workplaces, an army of Christians from North Sub who humbly but passionately refuse to compromise their convictions at work? What if we saw a handful of neighborhoods around our surrounding towns that used to be full of drama now get enveloped by the love of Christ and transformed as a result? It's time to poke our heads out above the fray. It's not our aim to blend in. Lord, Make us radically and refreshingly different from the communities we serve in all the best ways. Lord, make us alive in a place where it's all too hard to find life. Lord, keep us awake in a place where so many are asleep. Would you join me in prayer? That's our prayer, God.
make us that sort of distinct community. Of course, we want to be like our neighbors in many ways. Uh, in many ways that are not sinful and in many ways that allow us to gain a hearing with them. Uh, appreciating the good things about our communities and partnering with our neighbors on the endeavors that they're engaged in already that uh, are good endeavors in your sight. We want to do that, Lord, but at the same time, we recognize that it is all too easy for us to just shuffle along and fit in uh, until that fitting in becomes sinful until we've given in and started to worship the idols that those around us worship without even realizing it. We start to become complacent and sleepy in our faith, refusing to stand out or poke our heads up above the fray. We repent, God, of the ways in which we've done that. Help us in this community to help each other see our blind spots, ways that our clothes have gotten soiled that we didn't even realize. And help us to repent and turn to you for those clothes to get washed again so we might live distinctly, lovingly but distinctly on this North Shore where you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen.